whatever's helpful for you as you listen and engage with the message of God's word this morning. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you, along with John the Baptist, that the bridegroom has come, that the time for eternal life is now. And we pray, Father, that as we listen to the bridegroom, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Saviour of the world this morning, that we may not just be impressed by him, but that we might come to him to find the life that we truly need. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Many years ago, 2006, before Ness and I had had children, we had the incredible opportunity and privilege to see the world's greatest band in concert, in person, live. You too. It was an incredible, incredible experience. Granted, we were high up in the grandstands at Olympic Stadium there in Homebush, but it was an incredible experience as they sang our favourite songs, With or Without You, It's a Beautiful Day, City of Blinding Lights, Vertigo, great, great time. It was so worth the price of the ticket to experience that concert. And we weren't the only ones. As you might know, Stadium Australia, Telstra Stadium, whatever it's called now, holds over 100,000 people uh, for a concert like that. And that means there were no doubt more than 100,000 people like Ness and I who sat for hours on the Ticketek website pressing refresh every few minutes to try and book those tickets, let alone the hundreds of people who camped out nights and nights before the actual concert to get the best floor seats. When there is the offer of something extraordinary, people will often go to extraordinary lengths to experience it because we hate to miss out on something great. But the frustrating irony is that despite the money and the comfort that we often forego to experience these events, they are temporary. They don't last. The joy is exciting in the moment, but we are left wanting more. And even though our favourite bands will often give us an encore experience, the concert eventually does come to an end. That frustration, that disappointment, according to the great writer C.S. Lewis, is given to us by God himself. C.S. Lewis says these famous words in Mere Christianity. He says, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in the world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. We were created for something more than just temporary experiences. We were created for eternity. And over thousands of years, religions all over the world have been offering a ticket to heaven, have been offering tickets to eternal life. And many of them, if not most of them, the ticket they are offering says this, if you want eternal pleasure, if you want eternal paradise, if you want eternal life, if you want to get to heaven, it's dependent on your religious and moral performance. You have to turn over a new leaf. You have to try to be a better person. 
You have to find a spirituality and give yourself wholeheartedly to it and then you have the ticket to eternal life. Maybe that's been your strategy. Maybe you're here for the first time this morning because you feel like you need to turn over a new leaf, that you need to try to be a better person, that you've been longing for something more than just temporary pleasure in this life, but you're not quite sure how to get it. Well, I'm glad that you are here this morning. But the message this morning is that you need more than just turning over a new leaf. You need a completely new life but you can get it and Jesus is going to show us how in John chapter 3. So turn to John chapter 3. We pick up where we left off last week. Jesus has performed his two first miracles, signs pointing to his true identity as the son of God. He's turned water into wine and he's cleansed the temple and often after the signs, the miracles that Jesus performs, there's often an extended dialogue where Jesus teaches something significant, either about the signs themselves or about him and his mission in particular. And John chapter 3 is really one of those extended conversations between two people, between Jesus and Nicodemus. Have a look, verse 1. There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. There we are introduced to the man. What do we know about him? We know that he is a Pharisee and he's a member of the Jewish ruling council. He's a ruler of the Jews, which means he's a deeply religious man. He's a, a moral man, very zealous for God and his kingdom and his word. We keep going, verse 2. This man came to Jesus at night. Now that's interesting. Why is he coming to Jesus at night? Well, we know in the gospel story there will be this growing antagonism between the religious leaders of Jerusalem, the Pharisees of which Nicodemus is one, and Jesus. And maybe there is that antagonism that's already silently or actively being developed behind the scenes. Maybe Nicodemus is intrigued by Jesus, but he doesn't want to come out in the day because what if his religious friends find out that he's going to see the guy that they're all worried about? It might affect his reputation. It could be that. We don't know for sure. But often night in John's Gospel, John presents light and darkness, night and day in moral categories. It could be that John is making uh, a statement about Nicodemus's heart and the moral darkness that's there despite being a religious man. And I think that makes best sense of the conversation that will follow. Let's keep reading. Nicodemus came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. It's interesting that he addresses Jesus. We know. Who is the we? As far as we know, there's nobody else in, in the room, just Nicodemus, but Nicodemus, we know, Rabbi. We know who you are. It's almost like Nicodemus is representing the Pharisees and the religious leaders in this encounter with Jesus and he thinks that he knows we know who you are. And what does he think that he knows who Jesus is? We know that you are a teacher from God. He dresses him rabbi, which means teacher. 
And of course, Jesus is a teacher, but we know that he's so much more than that as well. And so what happens next is quite profound. Did you notice in the conversation, Nicodemus addresses Jesus, we know, but Jesus doesn't even let him have a chance to ask a question or to make further statements. It's almost like Jesus just cuts him off, like a wise judge who can see through the the flowery rhetoric of a young lawyer. Jesus just cuts him off before he starts. Almost like, you know something, Nicodemus? Well, let me tell you something that you don't know. Verse 3, I assure you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus didn't even raise a question about the kingdom of God or about new life or anything like that. Jesus just brings it straight in, reorienting this discussion so quickly. Why? Well, I think to answer that question, we need to understand a little bit about the Pharisees as a group of leaders and the system of religious performance that they had started to build at that time. By this time, the Pharisees had been known as the good people. We think that they're the bad people because we live this side of the New Testament and we look back and we and see they're the ones wearing the, the black hats. It's not just me. But they were actually the good people. They were the the morally upstanding. They were the good citizens of the day. If anyone was going to heaven, it was the Pharisees. It was the Pharisees. And so they had become the final authority in matters of faith. They had become the final authority in matters to do with God and his kingdom. But the problem which Jesus will point out throughout all of the Gospels is that they didn't live out their teaching. They were often accused of being hypocrites, either because they actively didn't live out what they were teaching or they had watered down what God's Word had said to make it easier for them to pat themselves on the back and think that they were morally good, like the command to love your neighbour. They had watered that down so there wasn't a command to love all people in need, which is what God intended it to be, but let's just love people who are like us or who we like. And Jesus got so frustrated with that at one point, I think in Matthew's Gospel, he says, you Pharisees are like whitewashed tombs. You look all nice and clean on the outside, but you are dead underneath. And that has always been the danger when you see moral performance or religious zeal as the means of getting to heaven. It either leads to anxiety and despair as you realise, have I done enough? Maybe I haven't done enough. What if I don't get in? And it can lead to frustration and anxiety or it leads to watering it down and then to prideful virtue signalling, we know, look at us, hypocrisy. And maybe you've seen that in the experience of others. Maybe others have seen it in you. I remember watching our boys play indoor soccer uh, last week and the team that one of my boys was playing against didn't turn up and so they had to forfeit, which meant that the dads got to play. And we know how to play. And I made sure that my boys knew that we know how to play and we know the moves that will get the goals 
And we did. We showed those young kids how to play some indoor soccer because we know. But if I was to play against proper soccer players, sorry kids, older soccer players, we would be shown for the hypocrites that we are. We don't know everything. And it's the same with God. By cutting off Nicodemus just as he begins his conversation, Jesus is cutting off not just his supposed authority in matters to do with God and his kingdom, but he's cutting off his very system of moral performance and religious zeal as a means of getting into God's kingdom. And friends, if you think that you're going to heaven because you grew up in the church, because you grew up in a religious home, or because you have made a decision to turn over a new leaf and stop drinking and stop doing drugs, and I'm only going to listen to Hope (laughs) 103.2, then you are mistaken. You need more than turning over a new leaf. Because what does Jesus say in verse 3? I assure you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You need a whole new life. Jesus says you need to be born again. What does that even mean? How do you be born again? And Nicodemus is no dummy. He knows that a grown man cannot go physically back inside his mother's womb and be born again. So he says that in verse 4. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? And the obviously implied answer is no. But Jesus doesn't backtrack. Continue verse 5 to 8. He reiterates this idea, you need to be born again, you need a new life. I assure you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit." How can these things be? asked Nicodemus. And here in this conversation, we see something of what Jesus means by you must be born again. He's not talking about a physical rebirth. He's talking about a spiritual rebirth at God's initiative. Now, the phrase born of water and the spirit has caused many people to get anxious. What does Jesus mean? by being being born of water and the Spirit? Does he mean that you need to be physically born and then spiritually born? Does he mean you need to be baptised and then baptised again in the Holy Spirit? What is he talking about? Well, I think because in verse 10, after Nicodemus asks, how can this be? Jesus says, are you a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? Which is interesting because Nicodemus started by saying, we know Aren't you Israel's teacher? So there must be something in the Old Testament that Nicodemus ought to have known that explains this idea of being born of the water and the spirit of being born again. And the closest passage that I could find that talks about both the water and the spirit is Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25 to 27, where the prophet predicted this, a great work of God. I will also sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. 
These were prophetic words spoken not to the pagan nations who needed to be cleansed, but to the Jewish people themselves, highlighting that simply being born into the right family, into a religious home, does not secure you a ticket to heaven. Everyone, even the Jews, had a heart problem and nothing other than the eternal heart surgeon can fix that problem. The point that Jesus wants to hammer home to Nicodemus and to anybody who thinks that they can depend on their moral or religious performance to get to heaven is this. You need more than turning over a new leaf. You need a new life. Your natural birth, your religious devotion, your good works, your biblical studies, as good as they all are, mean nothing in terms of getting you what you ultimately long for, eternal life. You need more than a turning over of a new leaf. You need a completely new life. As I said, it's ironic that Nicodemus claims we know at the beginning of this conversation. And Jesus, in his sense of humour, uses the same language in verse 11. And we don't know whether his disciples are in the room or not. I'm presuming they're not. But he says, we know, in verse 11, we know some things too, uh, Nicodemus. You've asked, how can this be? How can this new life happen? Well, Jesus gives him the answer. Jump down to verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Thank you, Jesus, for an obscure reference in Numbers chapter 21 to describe exactly what this new birth and new life means. And it is an obscure story that Jesus is referring to here. A time in Israel's history when God sent judgment amongst his people for their rebellion, poisonous snakes amongst the camp that would bite the people and then they would die, of course. But God in his mercy provided a means for them to be saved. And that is that Moses would craft this bronze snake and, I don't know, before they had welding what he did, but attach it to a pole and then lifted it up for the entire camp to see. And if they wanted to be saved from their rebellion, if they wanted to be saved from the punishment that they deserved, they needed to look to this snake on the pole and they would live. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus and to the world, something similar is about to happen. I am going to be lifted up onto a pole. And if you want to be saved from your sin, if you want that ticket to eternal life that you long for, you need to look to me. And then John, we think, summarises this beautifully in verse 16 in what is probably the most famous verse in all of the Bible. Can I get you to read it out with me? John 3.16, let's read it out together. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And then I'll continue. For God did not send his son into the world that he might condemn the world, but the world might be saved through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only son of God. And you see there, just like in the time of Moses, 
Despite the pride and the arrogance and the rebellion of the human race, God still loved the world. And I think the world there in John 3 is the world. Not just those who are morally good, not just Christians, but the world that God so loved. And of course, Jesus loved the world. Remember, we know that Jesus is God from John chapter 1. So Jesus went willingly to that pole, to that cross. He could have stepped off it if he wanted to at any point. But he went there willingly because he was on that rescue mission to save you and I, Nicodemus, and all people. A number of years ago, I read a a really heart-wrenching story of a young mum who just pulled into her driveway. She lived on a very busy uh, road. She just pulled into the driveway and it was in a rush. She had her twin babies in the back seat of the car. And for whatever reason, she forgot to put the handbrake on. Maybe she left the ignition on. But as she hopped out of the car, the car began to slowly roll back down the driveway towards the main road with trucks and cars flying down the road. And in a moment of panic, she did what I imagine many mothers would do. She ran behind the car and tried to stop it with her own weight. Do you know how much a car weighs? Some cars weigh over two tonnes. And a 60, 70 kilogram person trying to hold that weight is next to impossible. And the car ran over her. But her body got wedged in the rear axle of the car as it was rolling backwards. And that was enough to stop the car. So that the car didn't roll into the main road. The babies inside the car were completely safe. But the mother had a shattered pelvis and had ripped her legs open. She was unable to walk for months and months. She survived, but she was willing to sacrifice her life for her babies. Friends, don't forget what Jesus is saying here, what God is saying to you here. That Jesus was willing to sacrifice his life for you. Not just willing, he did. And not just because you were the lovely babies in the family. You were his enemy. Rebels. And yet he still willingly did it for you. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is why John 3.16 is so well known and so well loved. Jesus' death is our life. The cross of Christ is our ticket to heaven. We deserve death, yes, but Jesus died for us. We have an incredible debt that we have built up before God, but Jesus has paid it all. That is the gospel. That is the good news. And the way we receive that ticket to life, Jesus makes absolutely clear. It's by believing. It's by trusting and depending in who he is and what he has done on that pole, taking your sin and my sin upon himself so that we never have to. Not encouraging us to turn over a new leaf, not encouraging us to trust in our own moral performance. He's saying, let go of all that. Just look to me. I've done everything for you. Believe me. Trust in me. Nothing in my hand I bring simply to your cross. 
I please. Did Nicodemus believe that? We don't know. Nicodemus appears later in John's Gospel. In John chapter 7, he appears and it looks like he stands up for Jesus, defends Jesus in a public religious hearing. And then at the end of the Gospel, Nicodemus is there just as Jesus dies and shows some honour and respect to Jesus. But the term believer that John wants everybody to have in response to Jesus is never applied to Nicodemus. Is never applied. He may be a believer, he may not. But we know that he had full hands. Hands of good reputation. Religious studies. He'd been to more College. Or the Jerusalem College equivalent. He was a morally good person. He's a person that everybody looked up to. But just simply turning over a new leaf is not enough for Nicodemus. He missed out on the one thing that we all need, and that is a new life given to us by Christ. At the beginning of this talk, I talked about the tickets to the U2 concert that Ness and I were so excited to have because it meant that we could experience that incredible event. But you know, the only thing that we needed to get into that concert was those tickets. I didn't need to know how to play the guitar like Edge. I didn't need to have memorised every song and lyric of U2 to get in. I just needed the ticket. And no matter my experience, I could get in and experience it. And it's similar with God's kingdom. It's similar with the eternal life that we're all created to live in. All you need is the ticket. It doesn't matter how well your moral or religious performance has been. It doesn't matter if you know every verse of the Bible or not. You just need the ticket. And the ticket is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's the ticket. Do you have it? I know that many of you have the ticket and you are not letting that ticket go because you know that's your only hope, the cross of Christ. But you'll be tempted and there'll be other voices, other may, maybe even Bible teachers that will tell you that ticket's not enough. You need to do something else as well. Don't give up that ticket. Hold on to that. It is your only hope for eternal life. And if you haven't yet taken that ticket, it's metaphorically on the table this morning. Jesus is holding it out to you. He doesn't care who you are or what you've done. He says, I've done everything for you. Here is a ticket to heaven. And all you need to do is say thank you and accept it. Please don't go home today without accepting that offer. And if you'd like to talk to me more about what that means or what that might look like for your life, I'm very happy to talk to you and I'm sure Chris is as well a ticket to heaven is more than a ticket to a U2 concert friends U2 is great but temporary heaven is perfect and lasts forever that's good news let's pray Father we thank you again
for your love. It was in your love that you sent your son into the world. It was in love that your son went willingly to that pole that he might suffer in our place, pay the penalty for our sin so that we might be forgiven. Father, free us from the burden that we think that we need to morally perform or be religiously zealous to earn your favour. Free us from that burden. Point us again to Christ. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Amen. Friends, in a moment we're going to transition to sharing the Lord's Supper as we remember in a physical way what Jesus has done for us. But right now I just want to give you a moment to pause and reflect on what we have heard. Um, I'll set the table, so to speak, and then I'll explain what we're doing and introduce that time together. But take a moment now just to pause and reflect. Maybe take out your Engage cards uh, and you have an opportunity to fill that out uh, as well. If you're visiting us this morning, what we're doing right now might seem a little strange to you, so let me just briefly explain it. The Lord's Supper, or communion as it's been often known throughout the years, uh, is an outward and visible sign of the grace that's been shown to us in Jesus' death and resurrection. The small piece of bread or gluten-free cracker uh, that we're going to eat together uh, is just ordinary bread and ordinary cracker, but it points beyond